You're listening to the Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. South Africa has a dismal record when it comes to the treatment of whistleblowers. I don't know whether it's because of what was experienced during the dark days of apartheid or whether because corruption has become so inherent that whistleblowers need to be kept quiet. But when one harks back to those dark days of apartheid, there was a term that informants were given. It was a very vulgar term. They were called impimpi. And some of the things that were done to those informants was absolutely horrific. That's where necklacing was introduced, where people were literally murdered for giving up information. That culture of punishing whistleblowers, despite the fact that what happened in apartheid was atrocious, seems to have continued into what we've always termed the new South Africa, the rainbow nation. We see that whistleblowers are still punished for their actions. A country that's been through so much that has acts in place, such as the Protected Disclosures Act, this is the last place in the world one would expect to see people being punished or people being ostracized for speaking what they believe to be the fundamental truth. Joining me today is Ari Danikas, and he is somebody that has experienced firsthand what can happen to somebody who believes they are doing the right thing by coming out and blowing the whistle. All the way from Europe, Ari, a very, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Chad, and thank you for inviting me to your station. Ari, let's kick off by helping our listeners to understand what defines a whistleblower. That is a great question, Chad. That was a dilemma we had also when we were working on the transposition of the directive, the EU directive 2009 for the protection of whistleblowers to our national laws. So what is important here is to understand, to make the simple folk understand what is a whistleblower, what he stands for, uh, what is the whistleblower concept. So. To keep it short, I believe whistleblowers are activists against corruption and wrongdoing at the place of work. They are essentially volunteers with a, I call them also citizens of conscience, and that actually, it was a definition that my close friend Cynthia Stimpler came with. So we're talking about citizens of conscience that they become activists against corruption and wrongdoing. Help us to understand, South Africa comes from a very dark past and people who were regarded as giving information to the authorities were generally looked upon as, as people who were betraying the struggle and they were treated exceptionally badly. Fast forward 30 years, we have people who are giving information to the authorities. It's not information that pertains to their comrades. It's not information that pertains to the safety of an individual. It pertains to the country at large and issues that face our country that could derail our very young democracy. Why do you think we still have this culture that we've inherited from the apartheid era where whistleblowers are treated in such a negative way? I think that... There's a misconception between paid informers and whistleblowers. Obviously, paid informants were very active during the apartheid times, and uh, you know they caused uh, the laugh of many, uh, many, uh, how can I put it, uh, struggling activists against the apartheid at the time. Now, 
that kind of culture carry on post-apartheid into the modern uh, democratic uh, South Africa after 1994. Uh, so it is very important to educate our communities. And the education starts at home and at the place of work as well as at schools. So we need to educate our kids, you know, the future whistleblowers, to make them understand what is a whistleblowing concept, what is it standing for, and how our society directly benefits from it. That are, these are the two differences that I can think of so that, that cause that serious problem. So, so that's very critical. You've touched on some important points there. Is There's a marked difference between an informer and a whistleblower. Do we now lay the blame at the feet of government and say they have not communicated to the public effectively through the different media streams, through the different communication channels available, that whistleblowers are actually encouraged and an important part of society, rather than leaving this misconception that whistleblowers get treated the same as informants were treated during the apartheid era. Because we cannot forget that whistleblowers in South Africa have been murdered and whistleblowers in South Africa have had to leave South Africa. And we're going to get a little bit more into your story a little bit later in the show. But I want to know from your side, do you think it's a failure on government's part that there isn't this communication about whistleblowers to the public at large? I think Chad is a failure as well as ignorance. I believe that, uh, you know, I mean, it is a rainbow rainbow country. We have a multi-ethnic, multi-language, multi-culture country. So how do you translate and explain a whistleblower concept to, to diverse, uh, diverse uh, ethnic groups, again, cultures and languages? So incidentally, we had exactly the same challenge in Europe. Picture Europe as being South Africa. You know, we try to, 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 to think of Europe as a huge, you know, village of, of multi-cultures and, and ethnicities as well as religious and languages. So how do you translate and make this, a simple person understand what a whistleblower stands for? And, and the translation was a major issue in non-English speaking countries such as um, Greece, you know, Italy, Portugal. We're facing many challenges and, and that was my key role of trying to uh, translate not in word by word, but in a sentence and describe what a whistleblower stands for. So I think the government needs to do a public public awareness campaign in multi-languages and make understand simple families, the children at school, you know, place at work, exactly the core principle of a whistleblower, what a whistleblower, a whistleblower stands for. I suppose it's a bit of a double-edged sword for government. They introduce whistleblowing procedures. They have an act in place called the Protectors Disclosures Act. We don't see much happening in terms of media campaigns around that and advising the public about that. And that could be because, be, be because conversely, on the other side of the sword, the majority of whistleblowing that we've seen involves government officials. So do you think that perhaps government has has not been negligent in making these campaigns available to the public to advise them what whistleblowing is, but perhaps it's deliberate? Like I said earlier on, it, it's both. It's it's negligent and deliberate. I mean, look at the state capture. It is, an, it is a coincidence that at the same time when 
the state capture came out, I mean, for the last few years in South Africa, we suddenly hear about whistleblowers, protect our whistleblowers. Is it a coincidence? No, it's not. What I believe happened here is that the government has failed to efficiency, efficiently fight corruption. I mean, look, it happens all over the world. But in South Africa, we have the state capture. It's tragic what is happening. And having said that, because the government has failed to fight corruption, we now have passed a burden to the citizens, you know, our communities, to actually actively um, fight corruption. That's exactly what is happening now. If the government fails, let the society take control and people do something about it. I'm chatting to whistleblower and activist Ari Danikas about whistleblowing. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about Ari's own story, um, how he became involved in whistleblowing campaigns throughout Europe and why he has a significant role to play in the South African context. This is Confidential Brief. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. I'm in conversation today with Ari Danikas, and the conversation is about whistleblowing. And while researching this particular conversation I was going to have with Ari, two expressions kept on coming into my mind, and we've known these expressions for years. And I always used to think to myself, what are the significance? They used to say, no good deed goes unpunished. And then there was another saying that was even more applicable. It's, it goes along these lines, and I'm sure you as the listeners remember it. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. And although we hear these expressions and we laugh about it, I never really took the time to think about it until I started seeing the significance of what was happening to whistleblowers in South Africa. We've had whistleblowers murdered. We've had whistleblowers having to flee their country. And this is not a good thing. This is a horrific thing. This is atrocious, especially in a young democracy with such a liberal, forward-thinking constitution. Ari, as briefly as you can, give us a little bit of a background, because I'm sure the listeners are wondering why I'm chatting to somebody with a strong European accent sitting in Europe about issues pertaining to South Africa. What are your links to South Africa, and why is whistleblowing so close to your heart? Chad, I immigrated when I was 17, as a young teenager, to South Africa. I love South Africa. I'm a South African citizen. And uh, South, Af- South Africa made all my dream- dreams come true. I wanted to contribute towards my society in South Africa. I've become a reservist, a volunteer for the South African Police Services, where I was utilized for my electronic skills. Now, in 2004, I've uh, witnessed uh, certain atrocities committed, wrongdoing and corruption. And at the time, the word whistleblowing did not exist in my vocabulary. I was not aware of any Disclosure Protection Act or anything like that, or I never was educated about it. So I did what I thought was right, report wrongdoing internally. Um, I didn't have the luxury at the time of a public disclosure act protection. I didn't have, uh, you know, the luxury of having access to online secure anonymous reporting mechanisms in order to report wrongdoing and corruption anonymously. And after that, all hell break loose. 
Um, in 2008, and after suffered retaliation and death threats, I've had to go on exile, and that cost my home, my social status, my career, eventually my country of residence. That was a short version of my history in South Africa. So, and, and thank you for that, for that very, very precise summary I, it, it's, for me, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. I'm, I'm not an immigrant into South Africa. I'm born in South Africa. Um, having to leave my country would be hard for me. For your family having to come to this country in the first place, there must have been economic reasons. For your family to have built themselves up the way immigrants do means that they believe they were giving to South Africa. South Africa was giving back to them and you became accustomed to a certain lifestyle. It must have been very traumatic having to put everything into reverse because you believed in your heart of hearts, if my understanding is correct, that you were doing the right thing. Describe to us more the, the personal trauma that a, a whistleblower goes through because we read about whistleblowers that have had to flee South Africa. We've heard about whistleblowers that live in fear. We've heard about whistleblowers that have even been assassinated. But we're reading this. We're not experiencing this. This is an experience you've lived. Help us to understand what goes through your mind when you think you're doing the right thing. Chad, allow me to do a correction first. I immigrated to South Africa on my own. I had no family. I had a, a distant uncle, but that relationship only lived for three months. So it was essentially all my family was in Greece. I was on my own in South Africa. Um, having said that, um, it was tragic, uh, especially the last year between 2007 2008. Me and my wife were living in, in horror. Um, we didn't know who to trust, who to speak to. Uh, it was chaotic. I look back to it now and it was like a dark age for me. Um, I lived in horror. Um, every day I was going to work. Um, I would kiss my wife good, goodbye and I didn't know if I was going to make it the next day. You know, I was coming back from work. Um, Things happened. I had uh, death threats, SMSs, with uh, you know funeral arrangements. Suddenly, um, people came to my store and, and attacked me physically. There were too many things happened, and and I knew I could I could identify the pattern. Being being in the South Africa police force as a reservist for ten years, you know, and early, I knew the pattern. So eventually, um, close friends of mine, which I can trust with my life, they had to to physically smuggle us out of South Africa. They literally paid the one-way ticket with their credit card so, you know, my, my details don't appear up on, on the transaction. And they drove us in secretly from Durban to Johannesburg where within a day, you know, we had to, to, to flee the country. It is, the, the one thing I remember, and it's very traumatic for me, I was very proud of my home. And knowing that you're closing that door behind you and you leave your house with your furniture, your curtains, your, your belongings, you know, we only took very few personal belongings with us. That was a traumatic. Returning back to, to Greece, my only closure was that I had my family there, I had people that I can trust, that loved me, and that gave me some sort of hope and strength to carry on. The rehabilitation was very difficult. Greece for me was a strange country. I had forgot how to write Greek or how to speak properly. It was a different culture I had involved. So it was basically starting again as an immigrant. 
in my own country of birth. Having lost most of my financial status and, you know, I had destroyed my career, I had to start from scratch. And uh, that's about it. Uh, I'm intrigued. What made you choose South Africa at such a very young age? I had an uncle, like I said, a far distant uncle which I never met before. And uh, my father, who was also had immigrated in the 60s to Germany, thought that uh, as I was very talented in electronics, uh, he wanted me to immigrate and go to further my studies in electronics. Uh, South Africa at the time had an excellent reputation in, uh, in education. So my uncle had suggested to my dad that I will, uh, you know, work part-time for him in his clothing business and uh, further educate myself through electronics. Um, my relationship with my uncle started, uh, it lasted only three months and then I was on my own. But I made it, I've finished my education, I've started my own business in electronics and the rest is history. The, the listeners to our show, a lot of their, their forefathers, three generations, four generations ago, came to South Africa as immigrants, and our borders are still open to immigrants. Sadly, uh, much like America, we're now seeing the tide is turning against immigrants, despite all the hard work that immigrants have put into South Africa. We've seen a rise in xenophobia. And I know we're going slightly off topic by talking about xenophobia um, while we're talking about whistleblowing, but both impact on individuals' lives. Do you see a rise in, in xenophobia um, where, where, where you are, or is it something that, that seems to be uniquely American and South African? No, Chad, it's a global issue. Um, when I left, no, when I was raised in Greece um, for the first 17 years of my life, uh, through my religious and through my... Um, home principles, my family principles, my education, we didn't know what uh, racism was, we didn't know what xenophobia was. We could not distinguish between color. Coming back to Greece now, things have changed. People don't trust foreigners, um, they don't accept uh, different religions, they don't accept different ways of thinking. And that is, I believe now, a global phenomenon. However, in South Africa, things are worse. And I've experienced that both in South Africa and out of it. It's a very sad place we find ourselves in considering that so many people are bearing the brunt of, I don't know whether we could call it institutionalized anger or whether it's frustration that's been building up, but I believe very strongly that it's misdirected. What we're seeing happening to immigrants in South Africa and to whistleblowers in South Africa is, is, is occurring as a result, in my understanding, as a result of people being very disappointed in service delivery from their government, looking for people to blame, not wanting the obvious to be pointed out, that the ruling elite are in fact responsible for a lot of the economic decay that we see and a lack of service delivery. I don't know whether you would agree with me that this is partly why whistleblowers get targeted because they are pointing out to some to some people what is actually so obvious that perhaps people don't want to see the truth. They don't want to have that veil lifted from their eyes. Absolutely, Chad. And I can tell you more that unless we have, you know, some sort of closure in South Africa and deal with a history, we I'm afraid we're not going to see progress in South Africa. Um, I also believe that uh, immigrants have a different way of thinking. So coming from outside of the country, they never experienced true 
apartheid. They never experienced, you know, the the, the seriousness of problems that the South Africans have uh, experienced. So they they are more balanced. So by doing so and speaking their own mind, you know, freedom of expression, they get judged. So imagine how it is for an immigrant to report a wrongdoing if he doesn't agree with his principles. Ari, tell us a little bit more about the work that you've been doing in Europe, the organizations that you become a part of, um, to spread the word and the importance of whistleblowing, not just in the South African context where you've experienced what happens to whistleblowers firsthand, but in the international context. Well, Chad, after I returned from, from South Africa, I consider myself a living study case of how not to treat whistleblowers. So I made it my life mission to advocate and help develop policies as well as protection mechanisms uh, around the world in order for future whistleblowers to be protected and encouraged and to come forward to report a wrongdoing. I mean, after all, I'm a father and I want to see the future of my children to be, you know, the world to be a better place for them. So, by doing so, uh, in 2016, I was awarded by Blueprint for Free Speech for my whistleblower efforts. Now, Blueprint for Free Speech is a non-profit charity that works internationally to promote the right to freedom of expression. Now, our work defends Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and uh, especially we, you know, as, uh, that asserts the right to freedom of opinion and expression for all people. Now, what is important is that uh, we do research, publication, initiatives, and uh, we have made available to the public domain original research and, and academic study papers for whistleblower protection. Over the years, I've been utilized by Blueprint, and I was invited to work for them. I refused to get paid, and I did pro bono. And I am now officially a um, honorary research fellow for Blueprint, as well as responsible for the East Europe and African region. Uh, recently, I helped. Uh, I took an initiative to introduce the South African whistleblowers to the world by assisting Blueprint to give special recognitions to the late Bapita Dekaran, who tragically got killed for coming forward and report, report wrongdoing, as well as Tabisa Zulu, uh, that was also persecuted you know, by the authorities and being uh, victimized for being a whistleblower. Um, furthermore, through Blueprint for Free Speech, I was invited to participate on an international group of uh, experts that uh, were responsible for the design and implementation of the EAT project. Now, the EAT project stands for Expanding Anonymous Tipping. And what it is basically, it's a anonymous reporting, online uh, reporting uh, mechanism that whistleblowers can enter without any trace back to them anonymously and report wrongdoing. Uh, that uh, kind of protection mechanism was actually... Um, came out from the directive, uh, the EU directive of 2009 for the, you know, Whistleblower Protection Act. And uh, I was actually the only whistleblower that was tasked to assist that international group. And uh, my work was focused on the questionnaire 
of the whistleblower that will complete in order to do a public disclosure. That was success and uh, we, the EAT project was also responsible for the um, transposition of the uh, directive of the EU to the national laws. I see now in the United Kingdom, even though they've, they're no longer part of the EU, they are also voting in the House of Commons for a act to protect whistleblowers. Do you know much about that? Yes, I do, Chad. And actually, the uh, Whistleblower Act in uh, the UK, it, it's considered one of the best, and it was actually pre-existed directive of the EU. However, because, the, um, you know, obviously recently the um, United Kingdom left the Commission, the European Commission, um, you know, they, they might change a few things, but uh, more or less is in the same line as the directive. The only difference I could pick up between the directive of EU and the UK proposed legislation is that although the directive is focusing towards encouraging whistleblowers to come forward as well as protecting them, the UK legislation does not really encourage whistleblowers to come forward. The main focus was protect them from, from retaliation at work. I'm chatting to Ari Danikas about the importance of protected disclosures and making sure that whistleblowers don't get traumatized or even worse, ostracized and even more horrendous, exiled or killed. We're going to be continuing the conversation shortly. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Today we're chatting to Ari Danikas about the plight, and, I, and I'm, I'm serious when I use the word plight because it's been demonstrated time and time again, the plight of whistleblowers. Whistleblowers are not treated well. Whistleblowers have been murdered. Whistleblowers have been exiled, forced to flee their countries. Whistleblowers have landed up unemployed um, and unemployable because their potential employers feel that if they do something wrong, even if it's uh, through negligence or ignorance, they're going to be reported. So the life of a whistleblower is not easy. I always thought that being a progressive country, having a liberal constitution, that we would have acts in place. And we do. We have the Protected Disclosures Act. But it doesn't seem that the Protected Disclosures Act has gone anywhere near in terms of protecting whistleblowers and being able to give them that sense of, of safety so that they can have some or other means to be able to communicate what they need to talk about. I want to talk to Ari now about South African legislation, the proposed changes, as well as the, the media role that, that needs to be played in respect of any changes to legislation, what we need to see happening in the South African context. Sad, so, uh, interesting subject. Let's start with the South African proposal. We had the Government Gazette of, I think, 31st August 2011 that uh, existed already. And um, I had studied both of them. I studied the directive and the proposal. Um, I think that they are they're basically going through the right path, but uh, certain issues are inclusive. I have picked up, for example, that uh, the limitations as to who will qualify as a whistleblower. For example, uh, I believe that in South Africa, if a whistleblower has personal gain, he does not 
qualify as one. Now, that contradicts the directive. You see, let me go back a bit. A bit. We sometimes question the motivation of whistleblower. We always look at the whistleblower who's coming out to do a public disclosure uh, and thinking, oh, what does he have to gain? What is he doing that? Well, who cares? And I'll repeat myself, who cares? What do we care about? We care about the value of the whistleblower to a society. Who benefits? A society benefits. The taxpayer benefits. The government itself. The government functionality benefits. So the directive says, listen, we don't care about, about your motivation. We don't care if you have, a, if you have a grant against your boss or you might get a promotion because of that or for whatever reason. We care the, about the value that you offer to our society and who will benefit from it. Having said that, I believe in South Africa we need to rectify that issue. Also, um, you know, sexual discrimination at the office, that is something very important. I don't know if how clear that is being covered by South African legislation. And uh, what is important also is to introduce and regulate the way the Public Disclosure Act is going to be processed. Now, in the directive, in the EU directive, we have three specific ways of the public disclosure. That is an internal procedure, an external reporting, and external reporting with a parallel media monitoring. Now, we both know that, that the internal reporting is a recipe for disaster. It hasn't worked. It's been there for decades. Um, it silenced the whistleblower. Now, the external reporting is something that can have an effect if it's not handled exclusive by the government sector. And then we have the external reporting via also parallel media uh, monitoring. Now, my money is the third option because suddenly we introduce the media, okay? And that goes to, my, to your second question, what is the role of the media to whistleblowers? Now, as my uh, good friend and uh, mentor, John Clark in South Africa, says, uh, the media has to be a safe harbor for whistleblowers. Well, speaking from experience, at least in South Africa, it is not. It is clearly not. We have a long way to go. The media needs to do an overall, if I have to be polite about it. There is a huge responsibility on journalists of how to handle whistleblowers. So I believe that training is very important. I believe that journalists need to train themselves or learn about whistleblowers, the risks they take, because journalists need whistleblowers as their sources. In fact, there's an article, Article 45 on the directive, which specifically recognizes the value of journalists as source and their collaboration with the media. So. In South Africa, I think we need to have uh, certain courses done to journalists who they can actually qualify, quote-unquote, to handle whistleblowers and therefore, you know, cannot leak their information. You know, there has to be uh, psychological support. They need to identify what the whistleblower goes through and also reflect a non-bias attitude towards whistleblowers who do not agree with the narrative of the journalist. It is very important. Um, having said that also, the media needs to be protected against retaliation 
For example, we, we have many examples of journalists that they've got killed, that they've lost a job, there were slap suits, discredited, character assassinated. So uh, in that matter, the South African legislation needs to make a provision to protect journalists that actually work with whistleblowers when they get retaliated and they lose a job or worse. That's very important. The same goes for NGOs who handle whistleblowers. If they suffer retaliation, they should be protected under the Public Disclosure Act. Thank you. So let's talk about the Act in closing. The summary of the Act states that it provides procedures in terms which any employee may disclose information relating to an offence or malpractice in the workplace by his or her employer or fellow employees and protection for an employee who's made a disclosure. The basic understanding is that if it's understood and applied effectively, the legislation known as the Protected Disclosures Act will help to deter and detect wrongdoing in the workplace, acting as an early morning early warning mechanism to prevent impropriety and corruption within the public sector. I've now quoted from parts of the Act, and what people may not realize is that this Act was introduced 22 years ago, Act 26 of 2000. So you would expect us to be exceptionally forward-thinking and protecting our whistleblowers. Why is this Act, which is 22 years old, not working? Because of corruption. Because of corruption in the government sector. Um, because of state capture. I mean, you know, think about it. If there are corrupted uh, government officials or politicians, for that matter, at, at, at their own places, their own positions, they don't want that legislation to, to be implemented. I mean, well, in every country I've, I've worked with, you'll find that we have an excellent judiciary system on paper. We have great laws on paper, but they are not implemented. And that is the core issue. And this is why I maintain that the Public Disclosure Act needs to be handled by independent private organizations and not just the government. Let's not leave everything to the government to control because that is a recipe for disaster. Government is talking about a recommendation made by the Zonda Commission to have an independent corruption investigation authority. We've got so many investigation authorities, but perhaps this one will encompass that act. When we come back, I want to chat to you very briefly about how people can find out more about what Blueprint is doing. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Today we've been in conversation with Ari Danikas about the very important topic of how whistleblowers are treated and what needs to be done um, within the South African as well as international context to protect whistleblowers going forward. We spoke about Blueprint, and for our listeners' benefit, how do they find out more about what Blueprint does, Ari? Chad, um, when I approach an NGO to collaborate with, I first look at its principles, commitments, and what it stands for. Now, if you visit the Blueprint uh, for Free Speech, which is www.blueprintforfreespeech.net, you'll see that, uh, you know, they remain committed to the following principles of work and practice. That is, we are committed to accuracy. We acknowledge the value of research. We are dedicated to providing the research for free for all. Very important. Our works for free. We promote informed, evidence-based decision-making. We believe every individual has the right to speak and be heard. And we respect individuals and their privacy. 
blueprint uh, obviously stands for what the name is already, okay? I mean, blueprint is, stands for expression of free speech. That's the most important. But also, we advocate for human rights and whistleblowers. Um, they do a lot of academic research. They're based in uh, um, Australia. And uh, I'm also now opening a branch in Greece, as I mentioned earlier on, which is going, I'm going to represent Africa and uh, East Europe. Now, we have uh, reports that they are uh, uh, academic reports and studies, case studies. We have uh, one of the largest free libraries of original research reports on different countries, whistleblower laws and policies. So we develop basically whistleblower laws and policies. And our original research of freedom of speech issues, including whistleblower protection, is actually in the public domain. Well, Ari, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a very important conversation. It's a conversation a lot of people shy away from. We've chosen 2021 and 2022 to be able to share different whistleblower stories in South Africa and to make the public more aware. For your time, for your effort, for your sacrifice, I want to thank you. And more importantly, I want to thank you for joining us today and helping our listeners to understand the importance of whistleblowing. It's only a pleasure. Ari Danikas was assisting us today in, in helping us to understand more about the plight of whistleblowers, but more importantly, what's been done to protect whistleblowers. If you enjoyed today's conversation and you found it to be important, it will be shared on social media, a confidential brief radio show on Facebook, on the High FM Facebook page. But more importantly, the entire podcast will also be uploaded to www.highfm.com within the next 24 hours. There will be a repeat um, of the show during the week. And I think it's important that people take away something from this. And that's the fact that people cannot hide in the shadows. People cannot sweep things under the carpet. It takes a brave few individuals to expose those that are using the darkness to hide, to expose those that are sweeping things under the carpet. And it's critically important for our country to heal and for our country to move forward that we acknowledge, accept, and most importantly, protect that what the whistleblower has to say. My name is Chad Thomas. I'll be back same time, same place next week.